Welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Robert Grant. Bob is a physician, a professor of medicine at UCSF, and the founder of Healing Realms, a clinic specializing in ketamine-assisted therapy. Bob is especially well-known for his application of internal family systems therapy in ketamine treatments. He's a certified IFS therapist and has the great distinction of having guided Dick Schwartz, the creator of IFS, on two ketamine journeys. IFS is a fascinating, relatively new approach to psychotherapy that assumes that the human mind is made of parts, and healing involves the cultivation of harmony among these parts. It's commonly used in the treatment of post-traumatic stress, and is quickly becoming one of the most popular types of therapy out there. I find it to be an especially powerful tool for addressing the root causes of suffering. Many very effective approaches focus more on coping with symptoms, which can also be extremely helpful. But IFS uh, is for those that really want to do a deep dive, which may explain why it's so widely used in psychedelic-assisted therapies. Anyway, my conversation with Bob covered Bob's background in working with HIV patients, the role of parts in the IFS model, the three most common types of parts, managers, exiles, and firefighters, how parts become burdened by traumatic experiences, the role of self in healing, and why IFS fits so well with psychedelics. And so without any further delay, I give you Robert Grant. Bob Grant, welcome to the Mindspace podcast. Hi, Joe. It's great to be here this morning. Yeah, we've uh, been trying to put this together for a while. Grateful the day has finally come. How's the day for you so far? It's been lovely and here in San Francisco where I live and work. And uh, we've had some warm days and uh, summer is coming. And I think it's my favorite time of the year, spring and summer. The days are getting longer. Uh, I'm feeling more spaciousness and energy and Great. Wow. Great. Great. Um, you've got quite an unusual and interesting kind of background, how you came to your work as a IFS therapist, which I want to talk about. Um, so you're a pulmonary medicine physician, you're a professor at UCF, UCSF, um, and you've had some twists and turns. Can you just tell us uh, how you became an IFS uh, therapist? Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's a lifelong story. I, I, I feel like I'm just starting to arrive at my original calling. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I was uh, studying comparative literature in college, uh, and that took me to Peru, uh, where I immersed myself in literary culture, and I was interested in comparing uh, North American and South American uh, fiction uh, at that time, and um, and I became aware of of ceremonies uh, taking place in the northern coast of Peru. Uh, people who call themselves curanderos um, would work with families, and and there was one documentary that I saw done by anthropologists that really describe a child with a condition called susto, which uh, we might call PTSD, 
um, but it's, it's translates to fright um, and children with this condition um, just uh, become uh, uh, withdrawn and, and less interactive or sometimes not interactive at all. And, and this ceremony it was incredibly powerful. It brought the extended family together and uh, they did a psychedelic, uh, uh, not using a cactus called San Pedro that has mescaline in it. And then uh, they spent all night uh, saying affirming things to each other and to the child who was affected. And by the next morning, I, uh, the child was better. And, uh, you know, it really spoke to me in a very powerful way. And it, it you know, and it, and it was consonant or uh, resonant with my, um, my interest in narratives and stories and, and, and making fiction real. And, um, in magical ways, <laughs> and uh, magical realism is is the connection between North American and South American literature, and so I was just feeling it. I think I misinterpreted it at the time. I, um, you know, I, I dismissed the idea that they were even using a psychedelic medicine at that time. I just saw, you know, a family coming together under the guidance of an elder and 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 saying affirming things to each other. And I said, well, you know is a no-brainer this is why the child got better it's uh you know what a blessing to be able to bring a family together with the will to make one of their members uh uh have some relief and, and then to say affirming things to each other you know that it's social connection is the secret sauce that makes this work and uh it ended up being a, a strong calling uh, to medicine for me um and particularly social medicine and, and understanding uh, disease as a, uh, a disturbance in the, in the social relations between people. And I thought I was going to study occupational health and safety or psychiatry, something like that, um, so that I could study social interaction. Um, but, you know, I started medical school in 1982. And what else started in 1982? The HIV epidemic. Um, which I immediately saw was a, a virus which very directly undermines human connection in so many different ways through stigma, by making us afraid of, of sexual connections, sometimes making us afraid of, of, of even living together. In the, in the early 1980s, there was enough ambiguity about how HIV was transmitted that you know, some people were afraid to even be in the physical presence of someone living with HIV. Fortunately, we learned pretty quickly that HIV is spread only through very specific sharing of, of, of fluids, but um, can't get it in the air. But uh, we didn't know that in 1981, 1982, when I started working on this. So I, I just saw this virus as uh, a plague on our on our human connection and uh, making us even more afraid of, of things that we are always afraid of, including vulnerability and connection and sex. And all of these things are scary for us humans because they're so important for us. And, um, and so I uh, devoted my life to finding ways to try to solve the HIV epidemic. And, uh, and that was a 30-year odyssey of developing technology, uh, diagnostics and treatments, and then uh, prevention, including the pre-exposure prophylaxis concept, uh, did trials proving that it was safe and effective. 
for preventing HIV transmission. And, and beautifully, you know, I, I, I designed those trials of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP to show whether or not uh, taking a pill a day would prevent HIV. That was my goal. Um, but the, the fringe benefit of that is that people felt safer mm. having sex. And that was the game changer. That is the importance of PrEP is that uh, for so many uh, men and women around the world uh, who had grown up in the AIDS epidemic era, uh, sex was even more frightening than it normally is. And, um, and, uh, and, that, and that created, in some cases, devastating isolation. And, and people found a way through that by using PrEP so that at least that um, the fear of HIV was no longer a concern for them. Hmm. And so it was 2014 when I felt like we had all the technology we needed to end HIV transmission and disease. And yet um, we weren't doing it. We weren't implementing what we knew how to do uh, either at an individual level or at a public health level. Uh, I spent some time in Geneva working with the WHO, and I could see that even at the national or international level, we knew how to end HIV transmission and disease, and yet collectively and individually, we weren't doing it. And so, um, uh, ended up, uh, well, and then I had a personal tragedy in my life. Um, I had worked with a collaborator, a sociologist, a man named Jeff McConnell for 12 years, and he was a man living with HIV. And he died that year in 2014. And he died after he stopped taking his antiretroviral medicines that were essential for preserving his life. And, um, you know, me, the champion of technology, technology development, um, was devastated, just devastated by his loss. Because, um, you know, if, if, if all the technology we had couldn't keep the one man that I cared most about in my life alive, then what was I doing trying to have an impact on the world? I mean, it just seemed like hubris. Um, and, um, and so I became very curious about why my friend Jeff, my colleague Jeff, would stop taking his antiretroviral medicines. And I gave up my day job uh, in running a laboratory and um, doing clinical studies and took a job as the chief medical officer for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation which is a huge aid service organization um, in San Francisco. It serves more than 20,000 people a year. And, um, and that's when I discovered and learned more about uh, the underlying social and psychological determinants of, of HIV, of the phenomena that, were, that impacts all of us, uh, whether we're personally infected with HIV or not. Uh, HIV has impacted our, the, the zeitgeist of our age. Um, uh, and, uh, and yeah, it's in that context that I learned, uh, very directly about depression, substance use disorders, PTSD, trauma, and importantly, stigma and how even in the era of, of antiretroviral therapy, we still live in a highly stigmatized world and it's divided into us versus them. And there's HIV stigma, there's racial stigma, there's uh, social class stigma. There's, you know, there's just this natural tendency to divide the world into us versus them. We're okay, they're not. And um, 
and we still, you know, we can see that, that sort of inherent capacity that we have to divide the world into us versus them. We see it manifested in in all of the isms, the classisms, the racisms, the um, sexisms, and and I think that um, you know it, it really became clear to me that I needed to learn more and and become more skilled at human connection and fostering human connection, and that it brought me back to that you know northern Peruvian coast uh, and and realizing that that it was the human connection that was curative or that was essential and that the mescaline in the room was helpful, maybe because it brought people together, maybe because it facilitated that human connection, but the, the curative process was human connection. And, um, and it was shortly thereafter that I learned about internal family systems and how internal family systems is very much a story of, of connection between people, but importantly, how it's also a story about connection within ourselves, where we um, are home to a whole family of different parts. And they're like external families in that our internal families live together, and yet they don't always get along with each other. <laughs> There's feuds and rivalries and differences of opinions and family members who aren't even talking to each other. And so our internal families are like our external families in that way. And that we are connected, we're living together, and yet we don't always get along. And, and, and so uh, internal family systems, from my perspective, gives us a chance to expand the dialogue, the inner dialogue. And as we do that, we become more skilled at, at externalizing that and, and seeing how other people in our lives um, may trigger different parts of us in a way that, um, that uh, gives us opportunities to learn about our inner process as well as their inner processes. So internal family systems is a passion project for me. It's, it's really helped me in my own work. It's helped me reconnect with uh, my career. Um, and, you know, I think it is the, it, it, it very directly uh, facilitates um, psychedelic healing. And, and I would go so far as to say that psychedelics really are there to facilitate that inner communication and sometimes an outer communication. Um, but it's the communication and the connection, which is ultimately healing. Mm -hmm. so, wow. Very long answer to yeah. a short question. <laughs> Beautiful. It's, um, it's, it's lovely to hear IFS uh, kind of introduced in that context. Um, really like a, a beautiful introduction. Um, I wonder if we can drill down a little bit into this idea of parts. I think for, many people, therapists and non-therapists, <clears throat> the notion that we don't have kind of like a singular psyche, like one, one ego or, you know, one singular perspective that we see the world through can be a little confusing uh, or a little counterintuitive or something. And yet, of course, when, when you do IFS, it, it reveals itself to be so intuitive and so real, but um, what exactly are parts, would you say, and how do they form? Well, uh, I think the, um, 
easiest way to directly experience um, parts uh, of your of, of a person's mind is, is really to think about moments when uh, we've ha- we may have had difficulty making a decision or mm-hmm. we felt ambivalent about something potentially important. Um, you know, uh, maybe about a career choice. You know, do we do this or do we do that? Do we go to this kind of school or that kind of school? Sometimes around relationships, which are very important for us and very complex. You know, we may have times where we debate with ourselves. You know, is this is this a good relationship for me? Should I um, be with this person, or should I, you know, ask for some space, or or potentially break up and do something else? Uh, and um, these are moments of ambivalence, and um, you know. And, and, you know, some people, um, you know, make decisions more readily than others. Uh, thank goodness <laughs> we're different mm-hmm. in that regard. But we all know, uh, you know, we've all had an experience where we felt ambivalently about something and we've wanted more information um, and we've needed time to sleep on it and decide uh, later um, what to do about a given situation and that's that's absolutely healthy if you think about it you know if, if you don't take that time if you don't pause to reflect then you end up making decisions in very reactive ways um and and so you know i think that that kind of experience is a is an opportunity to get to know some parts uh, within each each of you um maybe listening thinking back at a time when you felt ambivalent or when you struggled with a decision and, uh, and then, you know, just reflect on what, what was up for you at the time, you know, it, it may have been, you know, in the context of a relationship, for example, and you may have had parts that very much liked being with a person that you had spent some time with, liked the familiarity, um, liked some of the things that that person did for you and that you could do for them. And then there were maybe other parts, that were, you know, I don't know, angry or tired or just curious about something else going on. And so, you know, we have this opportunity to listen to the parts that want to stay in and the other part, parts that want to get out and, and, and hear them out and, you know, find out what are they thinking? What are they feeling? And then uh, possibly even going to another layer, you know, of, of, of reflection on, you know, what do they really want or what are they trying to do, those parts? You know, what are they afraid will happen if they stopped taking that strong position on getting into or out of a relationship or getting into or out of a job? You know, what are they afraid might happen? Um, and then, you know, that may un- unveil some more hidden material about uh, trauma or injury that occurred in childhood. So I think that, you know, and, and I'll become a little more didactic in a moment, but, you know, I think that this is just an opportunity for all of us to have a very, very personal and intuitive experience with different kinds of parts. So in, in IFS, um, if you study it, you, you learn different categories of parts, um, but you can do IFS without explaining that to your client. Um, and, you know, some clients will need to know what you're getting at and what your paradigm is. And so it's okay to explain it to them, but you know, people can intuit their way through their own parts. 
So in the example I gave, those, uh, you know, the two parts that were up, the one that wanted to stay in versus the one that wanted to get out, those are our protective parts. Um, they're there to try to keep us on track, try to help us make good decisions, try to keep us informed about things that we might be afraid of or things that we might want in life. So these are uh, called protective parts. And there's two kinds of protective parts. There's uh, managers that try to hold the ego together and try to help us um, stay organized and, and somewhat regulated from an emotional point of view. Um, you know, it's the managing parts that uh, other paradigms might call ego. Um, but in IFS, we could have lots of different egos, lots of different managers. Not all of them have the same strategies uh, or, um, or, or belief systems or experience or knowledge. Um, but managers essentially are like ego. They try to keep us on track, try to have us show up uh, on time <laughs> and, and, you know, try to help us do the right thing in terms of, um, you know, staying uh, uh you know, being fair and ethical and legal and all that. And then some protective parts are, um, are more like firefighters. And um, I think that, you know, we probably should not call them firefighters, but I'll, I'll tell you the history of that, that, you know, a, a firefighter is a very courageous um, person, um, man, woman, um, gender, non-binary, whatever, but um, very courageous person and a firefighter um, uh, puts out fires. And if, if uh, the building has to be torn down to put out the fire, the firefighter will do that. And uh, no, they don't like doing that. Um, and it's interesting, yeah, but they, 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 they are willing to do uh, even violent or potentially destructive things to put out the fire. And so a firefighter is a protector that, uh, sometimes is violent or sometimes uses substances uh, to excess and, um, uh, you know, sometimes is self-destructive even. So firefighters, um, you know, I think we can see them as, 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 as um, courageous, um, but their external behavior sometimes looks very destructive. And, um, but it's helpful in, in the IFS context to understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to put out the fire. They're trying to calm the system. They're trying to regulate uh, the system. And uh, they just have extreme ways of doing it. Um, so managers are called managers. That's the, one of the protective parts because they're trying to keep the firefighters contained and well-behaved. I have to tell an anecdote. I, I did an IFS training with a firefighter, um, an actual firefighter, well, a professional firefighter. <laughs> and he said that it's really unfair because, you know, firefighters have a, a pretty self-led agenda. I mean, they're there to save life uh, uh, first and foremost uh, and to prevent fires. <laughs> so firefighters are actually uh, on, a, on almost all days are very self-led. They're very, you know, calm and they're focused on uh, preventing fire and and saving life um uh human life first and and animals uh second and and it's true the building is also something that they try to preserve but that's like a tertiary concern that you know um 
And so, but they're not destructive. They don't go out to fight fires so that they can tear down buildings. That's not their <laughs> goal at all. And so anyway, this very kind uh, and wise uh, firefighter just kind of set it straight. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, it's a little unfair. Um, anyway, so, but it, getting back to the example that I, I tried to invoke about ambivalence, maybe staying in a relationship, getting out, um, you know, you've got a, a manager who wants to stay in, maybe wants to keep the status quo. There's one that really wants to get out. And, and, and the one that really wants to get out may be willing to, it may be a manager level that may be, you know, contemplative. It may be debating, is this relationship good or bad for me? But that there could be some firefighters that want out too. And what are they willing to do? They may be willing to have an affair or to, um, uh, you know, do something violent or to, um, you know, just abandon the situation. I mean, these, you know, in different contexts, these may be very, very healthy behavior. Well, some of that may be healthy behaviors. Um, I'm not wanting to, wanting to judge that. I'm just saying that mm -hmm. there may be firefighters that want out and they're, they're willing to do anything to get out. And, and, um, and, uh, or they may be a more manager type that's going to make, um, you know, contemplative decision. But the point is that they're, they have different points of view. There's mm -hmm. one that really wants to stay in, one that really wants to get out. But then as you work with those and hear those two uh, protective parts talk, often they're, they're both protecting some exiled material that, um, that's, uh, that they're trying to prevent uh, from coming forward to overwhelm the system. And so it could be that there's a story of a childhood event that was devastating in some ways that both polarized parts want to uh, try to protect the system from experiencing or re-experiencing that very traumatic childhood event that might have related to an interaction with siblings. It might have been uh, a story of sexual abuse. It might have been a relationship with parents that were either um, harmful or traumatic or, or traumatic in, in the worst possible way, which is through neglect, where they didn't get the attention that they most needed from their parents. Um, and, uh, and so those, those protective parts that come up and create ambivalence are often trying to protect us from some exiled material that um, also takes the form of a part that... Um, that can tell its story, that can interact with us, that can um, relate the, the story of what happened to them as a child. And as they do that, it becomes possible to have a relationship with material that was previously subconscious and, um, and to reprocess those traumatic memories and to allow that, you know, that um, childlike part to, to escape from uh, that situation that was so traumatic for it at the time, and then um, and then unburdened beliefs that were essential for its uh, survival in those moments, and um, and in that way, that part as it unburdens um, can uh, assume its more natural role. And so you know, um, I don't know if that was helpful, but we do think just to summarize the uh, parts or get, get categorized in three different ways. They're either exiles, 
or their managers, which is the protective part, or their firefighters. Um, but, you know, um, parts take on extreme roles when they're burdened, uh, usually by something that was either traumatic or perceived to be traumatic uh, in the past, and that, um, and that healing is a process of hearing out mm-hmm. that dialogue, that inner dialogue, so that we can really um, develop a relationship with our parts. And what is the we that develops a relationship with the parts? Well, that's self. That's that's the concept of self-energy, which is, um, you know, the part of us that is calm and confident and curious. There's eight C words that, you know, some paradigms call the higher self. And I guess we just call it the self. And, you know, I think um, we're beginning to understand how that self is really also a connected self. It's connected to um, higher orders of of social life. It's connected to uh, spiritual life. Um, It's connected to a deep sense of belonging and and knowledge. And, um, you know, if the parts of our system can really see ourself, our self-energy, then they calm down and they relax and they're able to understand it's going to be okay and that um, they can be heard and their story can be told and it doesn't have to be re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Um, one way to frame it is, is the self is the part of us that can see our own trauma without being re-traumatized. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a place of uh, calm curiosity and um and so that's it's the self to part relationship that we seek to foster in the ifs paradigm and it's it's healing on its own you don't have to solve any problem um there's no right answer to the question stay in versus get out it's it's really a process of having that inner conversation and developing that relationship between self and parts and then it can become clear whether it's helpful to continue the relationship the way it's been or whether it needs to change in some way or whether um, it may need to end in some circumstances. But um, that it's, it's, from an IFS perspective, the decision that gets made is less important than um, taking a self-led approach to making the decision. Hmm. Hmm. Um really again really nice summary of the the whole uh model there's one piece that i wonder if we can just come back to to get a little bit more granular on and uh it's really i think around the development of the parts and the like how exiled material gets exiled um and and why the parts kind of end up taking on these protective like the protective parts why they end up taking on that role and sometimes being burdened by it um can you speak to that well i um i think the concept is that uh, parts are um are always there they're uh everyone has parts (laughs) and all parts are welcome and um it's uh, they have some archetypal character. Mm-hmm. You could think of them as, as archetypes in, uh, in some ways. Um, although everyone's parts may be a little different from each other, um, there are some similar parts. So they're always there. Um, 
but and 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 they have they have roles. Um, they're uh, uh, they help us do things in the world. They they help us be in our bodies. Um, uh, they help us live an embodied life. Um, and uh, I think that um, uh, parts though um, uh, become burdened um, uh, by trauma. Essentially, something happens to them, and it may be trauma with a big T. You know that does happen. Adverse childhood experiences um, are uh, correlated with most health outcomes. Um, in a very powerful series of research studies, have been uh, people have been able to show that adverse childhood events correlate with uh, diabetes, um, PTSD, high blood pressure, substance use, all of it. Um, but it could be uh, trauma with a little T. Um, and, 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 you know, I've, I've heard it described as the, the slow drip of childhood, um, mm -hmm. where, you know, it, it's just a, a friend that, you know, didn't want to play that day. Um, that, for, for a young person, for a young part, that can be devastating. Like, I wanted to play with my friend today, and he doesn't want to. And why doesn't he want to? And, you know, it, 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 it um, you know, and, and so some of the, for, for we human beings whose social connection is based uh, mostly on our vulnerability, uh, we do get traumatized in, in these ways. Um, things don't go the way that our parts want them to go. Uh, and they, they can't, they can't, there's no perfect childhood. And, um, and, and in fact, you could think of it as the perfect child is, is one where we get challenged sometimes, yeah. um, but there's ways to talk about it afterwards. Um, and um, so I think that though, that in, in, in this conception, uh, a part gets burdened by something that it perceives as traumatic. And that often creates an exiled part that feels some sort of shame or guilt for um, what happened. You know, in the, in the example I gave of, you know, a friend who didn't want to play with me that day, you know, it's like that, that part may think, well, I'm not lovable. I'm not, you know, worth playing with, or he'd rather play with his, our other friend, you know, and, because I'm not good enough, you know. And so, you know, the part may take on a whole series of, of burdens, including, and importantly, shame or, or, or guilt or fear or anxiety, and then and then that often will cause managing parts to come to the fore and say, well, you know, these are very unpleasant feelings. So we're going to push them out of view. And, you know, I'm going to protect, you know, Bob from feeling shame by pushing that part, tearing that shame out of view. And, and, and they may even develop a personal relationship with the exiled part that it's exiling but it says, well, I'll take care of you and your shame so that Bob doesn't have to feel that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that may take the form of, uh, you know, becoming compulsive about, you know, um, studies, <laughs> schoolwork. You know, it's getting a little personal. <laughs> I'm actually telling you about some of my parts. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm Dr. Grant, partly because I love going to school and I love going to school because I love learning, but I also, you know, have, it's a defense mechanism. It's like, yeah, if I'm studying and I'm learning stuff, it means I'm not feeling things that are hard for me to feel. Mm -hmm. So I learned that really early on. And so I've got that part that says, you know, I got you covered. You know, we're going to do well in school. You know, doesn't that sound good? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's do well in school. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to worry about that. The other one, it's <laughs> carrying shame because he's out of the picture. I'm just, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, the part of me that likes doing well in school is not a very nurturing person, uh, not a very nurturing part for that other one that felt rejected by a you know friend who wanted to play with someone else. So, um, so it, it ends up being kind of a, um, a fraught system. And, you know, it's helpful when I can come back into the picture and say, you know, I'm so thankful that you helped me do well in school. Look at all that you've done for us. And I think it's important that I take care of the other one that got exiled because, you know, with my self-energy, I can really nourish him and, and, and heal him in a way that, you know, is not really in your job description. Your job is to try to do well in school. And you know, that's not the same skill set as, as, you know, listening to Bob tell his story and, and the, the part of Bob that is exiled and tell his story and cry and say how much he really liked his friend, you know. And, and so that becomes the healing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, let's talk about healing. That's where I wanted to go next. Um, you, you said things like, you know, this part needs to tell their story. Um, and you gave the example earlier about, you know, maybe someone coming to therapy because they feel confused about whether to stay in or leave a relationship. And that the, the, the purpose of the therapy is not to arrive at a conclusion, but to create space for these stories to be heard. Uh, can you explain that? It's like, what, What's healing about having these parts express themselves? It's, um, yeah, what's, what's healing? It's, it's the beginning of the healing process. Okay. So um, I think that uh, what's, what is healing is the self-to-part relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that relationship gets built based on uh, the part being able to tell its story without being uh, without causing a reaction or without having repercussions so um creating a a connection uh, between the self and the part by listening to their story is is uh an essential step in the process building those relationships um and also you know uh the focus also helps um we have in IFS this uh, a number of heuristics which are actually helpful. Um, and if I can digress a bit, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's clear, and it's clear to you know the founder Dick Schwartz in his most recent iteration of his book um, with Martha Sweezy that that IFS could be. Cons- uh, could be conceived of as a psychodynamic theory. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it is in this lineage of psychodynamic um, process. Um, and uh, because it does uh, embrace 
the multiplicity of the mind. It, it, it allows for uh, conflicting psychodynamic relationships within the person. It is a psychodynamic theory. What I like about IFS is that it goes one step in the direction of, of giving us tools mm -hmm. for uh, uncovering exiled or subconscious material. And so, you know, a classically trained psychoanalyst might, you know, expect to spend hours or days or years um, listening uh, with the client on the couch. Um, and, and eventually the subconscious material will bubble up either in terms of dream interpretation or daytime fantasies or behaviors that create um, ambivalence within them. I mean, they'll, they'll just wait for it. And I love that idea of just waiting, witnessing. And so I have great respect for um, thoroughly trained analysts. Um, and IFS, though, does give us some tools that allow us to move pretty quickly toward uncovering subconscious or exiled material. And so it, it, it has a toolbox that um, allows us to, to ex be expeditious in our um, desire to create inner dialogues. Um, but the, I don't think the process is very different from what a psychoanalyst would do. It's just a little more guided and a little more um, intentional. So one of the heuristics that IFS has is called the six F's. And so I can walk us through those. You, um, you, you want to find parts. So whatever parts are up, you want to find them. You want to see what's up for the person. It might be a single part that's up that has very strong feelings that need to be heard out. Or there may be a pair of parts like the want to stay in, want to get out. That's a polarized pair of parts. And so you want to find the one or the two or three that you're going to work with uh, on that day. Um, and then you want to focus on them. Let them know that you're here to listen to them. And uh, when I say you, it's actually the client self is there to listen to them. Now, uh, the therapist self energy is also very important in this process. So the, the, the therapist self and the client self is there to listen to the parts. And so you know, it's intuitive that that's reassuring. I mean, if you're wanting to make friends with someone, what do you do? You focus on them. You look at them in the eye. And you, 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 yeah, you focus. And then you flesh out. So that's the third F is you, you know, tell me more about that. Tell me, you know, what that was like for you. Tell me what was the worst part of that or the best part of that. Or what did you do with that? And then, um, and then we, uh, there's this, I'm not sure. Yeah. The, the, the phrase that we use is how do you feel toward the parts? And that, that's actually a, a key step because, um, you know, if, if you ask me, Bob, how do you feel toward that part that's, um, carrying shame? And if I say something like, um, well, I actually dislike that part. It's annoying. It's it bothered me my whole life. Why should I be ashamed just because somebody's going to play with someone else? That's silly, you know. But those are not self qualities. So that what that tells you when I answer that way is that it's not a self to part relationship that's being developed. You're hearing from another part of me that mm -hmm. is trying to exile that that part carrying the shame, and so. So you would at that point, um, having asked me how I feel toward the part, but having not heard from self, you'd say, okay, can you 
give attention to the part that wants to get rid of that shame. And uh, let's find out about it. What, what is it trying to do? What is it afraid will happen if we hear about the shame? Or what is it, um, what would it rather do if it didn't have to suppress that part that had all the shame all the time? And, you know, and so we changed the focus to the part that came up in reaction to the other part. And we continued to, to do that. And then we'll ask, well, how do you feel toward that part that wants to get rid of the shame? And, you know, at some point I'll say, well, I'm curious about it. What, what is it trying to do? And, um, and I want to know more. Well, that's self-energy. And so then that's our green light um, to start doing the real work of developing self-to-part relationships. So the feel toward is one of the six Fs. And then, um, and then you want to unblend uh, as much as possible. You want um, the part to be able to see the self and the self to see the part. And, um, and, and parts don't like doing that. They like being connected to self. They like being connected to self so much that they stick to self. They just stick like a, like a glove. And um, so one thing that I like to say is that, um, I, can we ask the part to give us some distance, some spaciousness so that you can see it better and so that it can see you better? So, you know, one of the beautiful things about connection, either whether it's between people or within our parts, within ourselves, is sometimes the spaciousness actually fosters connection because it allows us to see each other more mm. clearly. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, that can be healthy in relationships as well. Sometimes that, you know, that relationship that I started by saying, do I stay in, do I go out? Um, maybe there's a middle ground of, you know, let's just take some space and, you know, we don't do, you know, spend every day of, uh, of our lives together, but we take weekends off and have some spaciousness. And that may be all the relationship wants or needs. Uh, and it's the same way within parts within ourselves. But sometimes asking them to unblend, they'll say, no, no, I, I can't unblend. I, I'm desperate for more attention. But they say, well, no, it's, it's, if, if you just give us some space, then I can see you better. You can see me better. So there's unblending and then there's uh, befriending, you know, just continuing to say very, you know, it's like, it's so great that you, you know, I've been trying to protect Bob from feeling shame. You know, it's, he's done such a great job and, and look how well he's done in school. And, 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 and that, you know, has led to a, a, a career and, and so great. But do you really want to keep doing that all the time? And, and often they'll say, no, I'm exhausted. I'd rather that Bob, if, if there were a way for Bob to deal with his shame without me having to work all the time, I, I, I'd, I'd like that. But I don't think there is a way to do that. Um, that's why I've had, gotten stuck in this job. So the part may say that. You could say, well, you know, I think there is a way to, to help Bob with his shame um, without you having to work all the time, and, uh, you know. Sometimes the part will say, uh, I'm not sure that's possible, but I, I would want that. So, you know, let's give that a try. And, and, um, and then you can ask, you know, that protective part to rest and it can stay close and watch if it wants, um, just in case something comes up that makes it afraid, it, you know, it can step back in if it needs to. Uh, but that then gives you an opportunity to go back to that exile, which was initially 
which initially caused the protective part to come up, but that part now is befriended and it's willing to rest, and so you can work with the exiled material. And then ultimately you would want to get to a point where whatever caused the burden of shame to come to that exiled part, uh, that that part can have a chance to leave that situation and unburden that shame. And, um, and then the whole system can appreciate that, yeah, there was a way to deal with the shame that didn't involve having to compulsively work all the time, just as an example. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the healing process is really one of, of, of befriending uh, the parts um, and hearing them out and ultimately giving the exiled parts a chance to uh, be retrieved from the hard situation. And, and then to unburden the beliefs that were important to survive that hard situation. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then to have the rest of the parts come back into the situation see, and, and ask them, did you see what happened there? And, uh, and, and some of them will come back in and say, oh, yeah, wow, I'm impressed. I didn't think there was a way to solve that problem, but yeah, there was. So, you know, great. And, you know, and some of them may come back and be a little frightened. Like I spent my, you know, the part, like the example I give might say, you know, I spent my whole life, you know, working obsessively to, to do well in school. And that, now what do I do? You know, it's like, I, I don't know what my job is. And say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll work with you. There's lots of jobs that you could do. You know, maybe, you know, you can work on writing a book <laughs> or something other than school, or, or maybe oftentimes the, the job that the protectors want to do is, has nothing to do with what they've been doing. You know? mm. so the, the part of me that wanted to do well in school might want to take up finger painting or, or uh, you know, writing poetry like uh, I was doing in college. You know, maybe they'll want to go back and do that and, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, uh, fly kite. Who knows? Who knows? Mm-hmm. But, you know, letting them do what they want uh, is an important part of being um, a good self for them a good mm-hmm. self-leader for them. So, you yeah, know, the healing process is one. I mean, the, the parts are there. They, they, they're they still there after the healing process. You're, mm-hmm. you're not trying to get rid of any part. You're, um, you're just trying to allow them to be seen and to play um, their uh, healthy roles, uh, which are roles that are playful and pleasant and, 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 you know, productive to a certain extent um and that's one thing that i i like to tell people is is we need parts the self needs parts as much as parts need self Mm. um you know if you think of self it's this very ethereal quality of almost transcendent you know calm courage confidence connection creativity um and so, you know, you could think of it as, as you know, a, a brilliant scientist or a brilliant artist or a nourishing parent, you know, just sort of in this beautiful state of being. But self doesn't do certain things. I, I, you know, self does not pick up the phone and call, um, you know, the teacher at school. Uh, you know, self doesn't go out on a date by itself. Uh, self doesn't have a hard conversation by itself um uh, self doesn't go to work <laughs> um you know and and these are all things that we have to do to keep our bodies fed and our, you know um and you know 
live an embodied life. We need parts. Um, and, uh, but the goal is to have the parts be self-led. So we can be led by these self qualities, but still we need the parts to make decisions to, um, I mean, ultimately I believe that key decision, stay in or get out, um, that is uh, self can inform that decision. But ultimately, there is going to be a manager that comes in and says, you know, I can see all sides of this now. And, um, and a choice needs to be made. We can't be either in or out. And, uh, or there may be, you know, like I said, there may be ways to change the relationship to make it more spacious. But you know, we do have to make choices in life. And I think that those choices are often made by managing parts. And the goal is to have it be a self-led decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but self needs parts, um, mm-hmm. needs parts to be attentive and and skilled. And, um, you know, we need to study sometimes. <laughs> right. We might have to study obsessively, but we need to study sometimes. <laughs> and, and the parts uh, have certain skills and talents, which are important for um, getting on with life, right? That's right. That's right. They have um, talents and skills. They have perspectives. They have knowledge. Um, and, you know, I think self probably taps into a very yeah. transcendent sort of lineage of knowledge. But, you know, sometimes we need to remember where we parked our car, that kind of knowledge. <laughs> 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 That's going to be carried by a part. Yeah. So, so, Bob, it's interesting, um, just like hearing you... Um, go through this kind of this progression as you're talking about the model and like the last bit there um, you're talking more and more uh, as if these parts are people like, you know, beings, right. Um, I I was doing some parts work with a client earlier this week and he talked about like, Oh, we're anthropomorphizing these parts of our, psyche or whatever. And um, I'm just really curious about this. And this is maybe a bit of a throwaway question. I'm just really curious to, to hear your thoughts on this. So you mentioned earlier that parts have archetypal qualities, right? And I feel like you, I don't know how much you want to kind of back that up and, you know, bring in your expertise in literature. That's something that makes sense to me, especially because there, there's clearly recurring patterns, right? You do this work and, and these patterns do reappear um, very, very often. So there's an archetypal quality to them, but they, they also seem to have, you know, the qualities or yeah, the, the, the qualities of, of organisms like living beings somehow instantiated in our psyches or in our minds or in our brains or something. The question is like, what is the ontological status of these parts? You know, are they actually living creatures are they representative, uh, like representations of other people that have been sort of internalized through memory? Um, is this just a helpful metaphor, like a tool to help us kind of like work through crunchy parts of our lives? Like, how do you think about the, you know, the ontological status of these parts? Well, I think they're real. I guess I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. And I think it's most helpful to stay curious about them. So I love your question because it's a very curious question. <laughs> uh, you know, what are these, what are these parts and what are they uh, there for? And I, I guess I would just start by saying, 
I think they're real. Um, they, they seem real when we let them be real. Um, and that, um, and I, I think that they precede, um, uh, you know, our birth in some ways. I think that they're, 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 they're real and they come into being uh, with us or we participate in their being. Um, um, uh, yeah. So uh, in terms of anthropomorphizing, anthrop anthropomorphizing, sorry, it's a mouthful. Yeah. It is a mouthful. And for some reason this morning, I can't <laughs> quite get my head around it, but you know, it, 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 people do think of them as sub personas and they yeah. um, sometimes it's helpful to, to let them take, um, you know, a, a very visible role as a, as a little person or a big person uh, within us. Um, but uh, sometimes that, that gets in the way, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that parts can also appear as objects um, or can uh, appear as body parts. Um, you know, and, and, and in some ways that's helpful to think about that, you know, uh, lungs, I'm, my day job is actually as a lung medicine doctor. And so, you know, I think about the lungs a lot. And um, I, I believe that lungs are a part uh, in the sense that um, they have a reflection in our mind and, and, that, um, and there's a part of our mind that is very attentive to keeping track of our lungs, what they're feeling, whether they're inflated or deflated, and whether the process of breathing in and breathing out has gone easily or whether there's some inhibition that potentially could be life-threatening or or be a sign that we're experiencing something important in our lives. You know, we take a deep breath in when we're inspired by uh, something and, and then we sigh when we're um, kind of tired. And so we have a part of, we have our mind and our lungs are very much uh, connected to each other in a, in a way that I think is a self to part relationship on a good day when we're mindful of our breathing. It's a self-to-part um, relationship. And so the, the lungs, um, you know, you could think of lungs as a part, mm -hmm. um, liver's a part. Um, I'm studying massage lately because I want to bring body work into my practice. And so every muscle is a, is a part that, and, and, um, and I think we naturally anthropomorphize uh, body parts, you know, and it's helpful in, you know, as I'm learning massage therapy to realize, oh, you know, uh, my bicep is really angry at me right now. <laughs> it's, it's sore. You know, I insisted on, on you know, an hour at the gym when I was really only ready for half an hour. So now, you know, that, that muscle is pissed. You know, it's like, okay, how am I going to take care of it? How am I going to convince it that I actually know how to, to create my own fitness and help it become stronger? because it got angry because I overdid it yesterday. So, you know, it's helpful to anthropomorphize body parts sometimes um, to develop so that we can develop a relationship. We have such a powerful, powerful capacity for connection, social connection, that using that capacity for uh, connection with our body parts is, is uh, sometimes helpful, and just as it is with other parts of our mind. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important to not insist that our parts take the form of of persons of little persons and especially for 
those of us who are using psychedelic medicine to facilitate the healing process. Um, it's been my experience with uh, ketamine and my ketamine-assisted psychotherapy practice in San Francisco called the Healing Realm Psychotherapy, that oftentimes parts during or just after a ketamine peak will present as objects. And, um, and uh, yeah, I remember one situation where his whole ketamine journey was all about harp strings and harps and, 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 and harp is this beautiful, sonorous instrument, but his harp strings were getting blocked somewhere. There were little blockages uh, along there. And, and I was thinking, what am I going to do with this uh, symbol? <laughs> as a, you know, because, like, you know, IFS is my passion. So I wanted to turn it into an IFS session, but he wasn't coming up with any childhood memories. Just not, it's just harp strings. <laughs> Finally, I said, you know, what does that harp string need you to know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the harp string started talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it started talking about how much it enjoyed resonating with its neighbor harp string, harp string. But then there was one that was just was out of tune and it kept annoying it. And it was a little like his older brother. But, you know, <laughs> and so it, essentially it turns out that he was having a conversation with um, parts of himself that appeared as heart, heart springs and that, um, and, and, and then a conversation could uh, flourish and we didn't have to turn them into little people that could continue to be heart mm-hmm. springs. Mm-hmm. And he eventually found a, a blockage, a burden in IFS term that had stuck to one of the harp strings and had drawn it out of tune. And so, um, that harp string was able to let go of that blockage and, and harmonize better with the other harp string. So the whole thing was, uh, you know, and, and is that a symbolic, is it me- a metaphoric or does he really have harp strings in his mind? Uh, yeah, I guess I, I'm not sure I care. I mean, it, it seems <laughs> important. It seems real. Um, yeah. And, and I think he felt better after the whole process. Right. Right. Um, so that question is kind of linked to um, maybe, I don't know, like a more serious one or, or a more academic one or something or, or a clinical one. Um, just a quick uh, kind of tangent to introduce it. Um, uh the clinic that I work at, um, a lot of the the team, the, the clinicians on this team have a mindfulness background. And um, for many of us, our introduction to IFS was Dick Schwartz's audiobook, Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts. I'm not sure if you're <clears throat> familiar with it, but it's a beautiful uh, kind of <clears throat> kind of marriage or integration of you know, contemplative Buddhist practice and IFS work and um, listen to the audio book, did these IFS meditations, which uh, I found incredibly helpful and incredibly, yeah, kind of um, supportive way to learn the IFS model. And um, it was, I guess, you know, quite inspiring as a, as a kind of like a new avenue for practicing therapy with my clients. Um and it also, at the same time, like for myself and my colleagues here, raised this dilemma or this like interesting, um, this interesting question about these different models, where 
as I'm sure you know, um, in a mindfulness approach, the idea is to just not get too wrapped up in narrative or to wrap up in, in kind of symbols, um, uh, you know, that are expressing certain di- internal dynamics, certainly not to get too wrapped up in our sense of self or our ego, that in certain ways, these experiences are illusory or empty. Um, and it really is, a, you know, the practice of mindfulness is really about um, being able to sit and observe without engaging with or identifying with these um, aspects of our experience. And in some ways, IFS is kind of like the complete opposite. It's just like everything has a perspective. Everything has a story to tell. Um, and we really need to listen and develop this kind of uh, curiosity and this compassionate relationship. Maybe I'm exaggerating saying everything has, has a perspective or whatever, but certainly um, there's there seems to be a bit of a conflict for me in terms of like, okay, so there are these parts, how real are they? How much do I engage with them? Uh, how helpful is it from a healing perspective to granted some kind of agency as having, having a story and having a need, having to say something versus noticing all these things and cultivating a sense of equanimity, like that's there and that's welcome and that's okay. And, but just letting it all sort of pass through consciousness as just different expressions of, of, of our psyche without needing to get too involved. So I'm just really curious um, how you see that. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really interesting question and a a good question. Um, And, uh, you know, I I, I feel called to really talk about unblending Mm -hmm. as an important part of um, what I, I understand to be mindfulness as well as uh, the internal family systems process. Mm-hmm. It's really one of, of being aware of and, and uh, of, of different parts, if you will, or of different um, parts of the body, different things in our environment, being aware of them, but not being invested in or not being part of, not being blended with them. Mm-hmm. So in IFS, we call it unblending. Um, but I believe in mindfulness, it would be, uh, called a state of calmness or equanimity of, mm-hmm. of just letting things be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, uh, you know, so, so getting back to uh, asking the part to give us some space so that we can see it better and so that it can see us. Um, that's, uh, that's unblending. That's what it, unblending is. And I think that that's what, um, a mindfulness process also um, uh, desires. It's, mm. it's really a state of being unblended from the material yes. world and unblended from parts. Um, but that isn't the same as, as ignoring them. Of, right. uh, you know, in, in the mindfulness practice um, uh, that I'm imagining, I, I'm not claiming to be an expert in, in mm. mindfulness process, but um, you know, I, I do meditate some and. And, um, and, and I do find IFS to be meditative. Um, mm-hmm. and, the, and the goal, as I understand it, is not to become blind to what's happening within ourselves or the world, but uh, quite the opposite, to be aware of it all. And, um, and, and, uh, and, 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 but to unblend from it, allow it to be mm-hmm. something different from 
we are from what we are as a self energy or in our core of consciousness. Um, and then, you know, how much to listen. Um, yes. You know, I think that that's part of the awareness, uh, you know, listen, notice um, different parts of the story. Didn't notice what it looks like. Notice. And, and you don't want to be invested in it. You don't want to, but you want to be aware if that part is feeling shame or fear or anxiety. Um, I think it needs us, wants us to be aware of that, but it doesn't want or need us to feel it like they feel it. In fact, mm-hmm. they want to know that we have the confidence and, and clarity to see what's happening to them and have compassion for it uh, without taking it on ourselves. We don't have to feel it ourselves. Um, uh, but I think that we, I think a goal is to see it, mm-hmm. to be aware of it. Yeah, um, I, I actually agree um, that obviously awareness, um, you know, is this is one of the key skills that we're cultivating with meditation. I guess the the trickier bit is around what I might call like reifying, you know, like you said, these parts are real, right? And, yeah. and, you know, a meditator will say, well, if you really examine the ego or like, there is no, there's no real center to experience. It's just passing, you know, passing uh, content or something. And, and that, that really helps cultivate a sense of equanimity and, and non-attachment. And of course, none of us are yogis living in the Himalayas, dedicating our life to non-attachment. We're, we're householders and we have our lives and we have our attachments, and we have our traumas, and we have our needs. And, and so awareness of these needs and developing discernment and skillfulness around addressing the needs and finding uh, ways to satisfy them and, and sort of move on and stuff. And, and it strikes me that, um, attributing like an agenda or a story or perspective to a part is a tool. It's like a skillful means to work compassionately with some material that is causing some degree of suffering. Um, And so I don't know if that's a helpful kind of bridge between these two things, but I do think uh, because compassion and equanimity are both necessary on a kind of meditative path. Um, But there is something that I get kind of like um, caught up in, in this, in the sense of like parts are real, just like, um, you know, a muscle or a lung that, that, um, that they have some kind of uh, ontological status that we need to kind of um, endorse or buy into um, as opposed to just being metaphors or, or just a, a, a kind of a, a process or a configuration of, mental stuff that kind of comes and goes or something. So I don't know if there's more to, to, to speak to there, but that really strikes me as a, like a, maybe actually a more subtle uh, difference between these two models. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll think about that. I, uh, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I, I could see your point. You don't want to reify something in a given form that, you know, may have been important in the past, but mm-hmm. may not be important right now, or may not be part of the, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, one thing that I feel like saying is, is that um, it's, 
I do believe parts are real, but yeah. um, they take different shapes and forms. Uh, typically, often after they've unburdened, they'll um, uh, a very small part or a part that looked very small when it was carrying its burden um, suddenly might be balloon out into something that's bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, a part that was sort of crunched up and like this might become a dancer that sort of uh, moves around the room. <laughs> and so we don't want to, um, have, uh, think of parts as being, you know, concretely or materialistically mm-hmm. real mm-hmm. in, in, to, in, in, in a way that makes them immutable mm-hmm. because, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I do perceive them as, as being able to, transmute and transform and um and take on different characteristics uh, part of the healing process is to unburden um burdens that, that used to be important for survival in this traumatic time that the part may still want to live in or still has been living in whether they wanted to or not but as they unburden we ask them to bring in qualities that they've wanted and often they'll bring in qualities of creativity or curiosity self characteristics and as they do that, they change. They change. They mm-hmm. they appear differently. Um, you know, and 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 certainly from one IFS session to another, we want to check in on the person's process. Um, but we don't want to ask that the parts that manifested in a certain way reappear. Um, you know, if, mm-hmm. if they need to reappear mm-hmm. um, because there's more to the story. That, need, that needs our awareness, then, um, then they can. But we don't want to say, you know, that, that that overworking part is it, you know, how's it doing? Because, you know, it may not be an overworking part anymore. It may be a finger painting part. <laughs> and, it, you know, it may have taken on different activities, different characteristics, different qualities. And that's, in fact, part of the transient process. So mm-hmm. I guess, you know, to kind of circle back, I, I I don't think in the IFS community we want people to get stuck on a certain manifestation of right. a part. And um, and that may be where the body organ uh, metaphor sort of breaks down. Cause, <laughs> but body organs change too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, lungs change with age and muscles get bigger and smaller. Um, and more sore. Yeah. And more sore, more or less inflamed. Uh, yeah. So muscles and 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 muscles, by the way, can change very quickly if they're touched. And so you uh, touch a muscle in a certain way, and suddenly it can relax and become a much different kind of thing. Um, but it's yeah. still attached in its old places. <laughs> we're not <laughs> we're not reattaching anything. But um, yeah, so I, I you know, uh, but this is an interesting conversation. Uh, I think, though, that that I would, ju- would just want to say that these mental manifestations, whether mm-hmm. you want to call them a metaphor or a symbol, um, you know, they they deserve our attention mm-hmm. and our awareness, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and and now you got me thinking about you know ontological um, uh, origins of this, and you know, are they archetypes? people have often similar parts but they're never the same sure good to be curious about them sure but i mean that that's true of archetypes too they have a kind of a basic grammar but their expression is kind of infinitely variable um which is why it's it's an i think a nice way to think about it but 
What, what's the ontological status of archetypes, Bob? Can you help us with that? <laughs> I don't know. I think you're above my pay grade right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll ask. I'll ask. I'll see cool. if somebody wants to. Uh, <laughs> we'll have you back to, for round two and really get into that question. Um, if, if you're, if you're okay with it, I've got two more questions. I don't know how, yeah. how we're doing on time. Um, one thing I've noticed for myself and doing my own IFS process and working with clients is like, it could be a little destabilizing to go from, you know, walking around in the world, thinking of ourselves as like a single ego or a single mind. And then, um, seeing the, what is it? The multiplicitous nature of the mind. Uh, and all of a sudden it's like, I don't know, really know where to stand. It's like, am I this part? Am I that part? Where is self even here? Do I even know self? And like, I feel like that it can be a kind of, um, a, uh, a breakdown of a, of a certain way of making meaning out of experience, you know, ultimately for the best, you know, but how do you, how do you work with, um, that phenomenon that it could be maybe initially destabilizing and, and that there's all these different perspectives and it's hard to sort of know how you're showing up. And that when you're out with other people, people aren't seeing parts, they're seeing one body and assuming there's one mind operating inside the body. So yeah, just your, your thoughts on that. Well, it, it, so I get it. I get uh, that embracing the multiplicity of the mind does uh, create opportunities. It can also create, um, you know, a, a sense of insecurity among uh, some of our parts or all of our parts. And, um, I, you know, I think as, as you've been doing all day, you raise interesting questions that have facets. So I'll try to stay focused here. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, a, a technique that we have in IFS that is important not to skip is at the end of, of every session where we've asked um, managers to step aside and rest, that we bring them back in mm -hmm. and we embrace them. And so we want people to not be entirely in self when they leave. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they need their managing parts to... Um, find their car, you know, find their car, find their way home. Yeah. And, uh, and so we, 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 um, it's, it's part of the training to actually at the end of every session to ask that all of the parts, the protective parts that have stepped aside and rested for them to come back in and to give their perspectives and to, um, uh, you know, explain any concerns. Um, and that's to allow the protectors to have some confidence that um, the exiled material can be worked with and can be understood and embraced without them having to do whatever they learned to do to keep it out of uh, out of mind. Um, but it's also to uh, allow that person to come back into their uh, into the sort of managing aspects of their of their ego, their 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 you know, their managers are necessary. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one that, for example, that I often end up having to ask to step aside after, after befriending it and, you know, plotting it is the timekeeping part. Mm -hmm. So um, oftentimes when IFS goes deep, 
people do lose track of time mm -hmm. because uh, we've worked with the timekeeping part. We've asked it to uh, give us some space so that we can work with uh, deeper material. And so people may lose track of time. They may, they may have no idea what time it is or how old they are. And, and you know, imagine just saying, okay, well, um, 50 minutes is up send you home see you next week and 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 they're not able to keep track of time uh or that part has gone to sleep somewhere i mean that, that could be devastating who knows where they're going to end up um so you want the timekeeping part to come back in you want to tell them what time it is if they don't know and and um and that's part of coming back into their management system that allows them to be in the world now what why do we need a management you know, why do we need our managers? Well, to keep ourselves fed. But that's that's a basal thing. We need managers to uphold our social contract. And, um, uh, you know, I think Alan Watts has written and spoken brilliantly about this, that, you know, we, we are social beings. And, and part of, you know, being a social being is to have some consistency from day to day on who we are, you know. Our, our friends, our lovers, our parents, our children all look to us to be something like what we were yesterday. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and, and that's, that's part of being a good friend or being a parent or being a good lover. I mean, it's to be something like what we were yesterday. And yet, you know, we're not required to be exactly what we were yesterday. I mean, I think we aspire to evolve and to change over time. Um, and if we do need to make a major change in who we present ourselves to be in the world, I hope that we can find a self-led way to do that. Mm -hmm. We can sit down with the people that you know want us to be a little like we were yesterday and say, look, I, I don't need to do that anymore and I don't want to do that. So I am going to quit my job or do whatever I need to do to change and, and just at least give them the heads up so that they don't have parts that say, you know, he quit his job because he doesn't think supporting me is worthwhile anymore you know and that may not be the point and i hope it isn't the point but um but you know i think communicating the changes that we need to make is, is going to ease the transition but you know let's face it that uh, a lot of what a lot of the reasons we need to be consistent from day to day or at least a little consistent is to maintain our social contracts which mm -hmm. are so important for us mm -hmm. and yet they're not everything um, right. You know, inner peace and fulfilling life is also important, but you know, part of that is being a little consistent. And so who does that for us? Our managers do that. Mm -hmm. And so our managers are our friends. They, you know, keep us in, in good relationship and they keep us um, employed. <laughs> uh, you know, they keep us sane, actually, um, you know, and, and just understanding that if we open ourselves to all of this, if we uh, use mindfulness metaphors, if we genuinely get to a place of awareness of all things and all people and, and their constant mutations, um, you know, it becomes difficult to do anything other than meditate in that state. Mm. And yet, you know, meditation for most of us doesn't uh, feed the children, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, right. So, so I think we need the managers, and that's yeah. a good example of how we need them. And and they should be invited back after every IFS session. And 
you know, I, thinking about psychedelics, that's also really important. We, we don't, you know, give yes. people a psychedelic medicine, let them go into this sometimes beautiful dreamlike state where everything is possible and they can become awareness of so much more than, than an ordinary state of consciousness might allow. We don't let them try to walk home in that state. <laughs> um, we, you know, they, they have to, we want them to come back and be back in their ego functions, which may have transformed through that process, just as they can transform in an IFS process. But, but we need the managers to get home, to find our car, you know, all of that. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I do want to talk about psychedelics briefly here, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to sneak in two questions into one, if you don't mind. Um, you're good uh, at that. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's not such a great skill as an interviewer. But, uh, um, IFS has become so popular in the therapist community. And you know, right, it's impossible to get into even the level one training. And the IFS Institute is overwhelmed by demand. I'm curious what you think of that. And then relatedly, like it seems to be, it seems to be happening in parallel with you know, the psychedelic renaissance and the kind of arrival of psychedelic assisted therapies. Um, so I wonder what is it about IFS that plays so nicely with psychedelics? Um, maybe those are two separate questions or maybe they're related. I'll let you figure that out. <laughs> I think, I think we are in an, uh, an ex uh, we're in an era of expanding consciousness. Yes. And, um, and so I think that that's really um, how psychedelic medicine is, is seeming more fruitful and more uh, helpful. And it's also why IFS is coming to the fore. Is it, it, both of these are very expansive opportunities. And I think we're in a period of expansion. Um, you know, as a caveat, I don't think our goal is an infinitely expanding consciousness. I think <laughs> we want our consciousness to breathe and inspiration yes. is important, but expiration is also important. Yeah. And in fact, expiration makes inspiration possible. You know, we breathe in, we breathe out. And so we expand and contract, we expand and contract. And so I don't think we should be, I think we should enjoy this period of expansion. I think um, we'll have an opportunity to enjoy a period of contraction at some point. And uh, I just would hope that it not be brutal the way it was in the 70s with the war on drugs, which wasn't really a war on drugs at all. It was a war on people um, who were, yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah. So I, I think that IFS plays well with psychedelics because um, they both, uh, psychedelics and IFS, embrace the multiplicity of the mind. I think that IFS is con seeks consent at every step. Um, a good IFS therapist will stop frequently and say, is it okay that we talk about that? Is it okay that we um, look at that uh, part that may have been exiled? Is it okay if we focus on this other thing? And and if the client says no, it doesn't feel okay, then it's no. Um, you know, we don't try to talk them into doing something uh, that, that we think is good for our clients. That's not what IFS does. It just, it seeks consent at every step. And I think that that's a good skill to have um, for people holding space with psychedelics because mm. 
you know, we don't really know what their state of mind is at any given moment. And, you know, they may um, be, uh, uh, yeah, they may have something going on and, and, um, and it may look to us like one thing, but, you know, we want to check in with them and say, is it okay that we work with that? Or we talk about that. And if they have a part that comes up and says, no, I'm really afraid of that. And I want to leave it alone. And we just, uh, you know, I think as we hold space in the psychedelic world, we want to make sure that we're seeking consent at every step along the way. Um, because the person's changing. They're, they're um, experiencing different aspects of themselves. So both IFS and, and psychedelic guiding require uh, that it be a continually consent-seeking process. Um, I think that, um, you know, uh, psychedelic uh, literally means mind manifesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the roots of the word mean mind manifesting. And, um, and IFS is mind manifesting. We're, we're discovering parts of the mind that may have um, obscure relationships uh, with ourselves and some of it may be exiled, maybe unconsciously um, exiled. And so both are mind manifesting. Um, I also think that IFS uh, opportunes psychedelic states. It is itself a psychedelic process. And um, first, um, you know, once, you know, we, sometimes there's a whole series of protectors that we have to ask or that we end up asking to rest. Um, and sometimes they're willing because they trust us. And it's been my sense that if, if, if there's a, a kind of a logic making part and that one rests, if there's a timekeeping part and that one rests, and there's a um, kind of a, a part that needs everything to have material form, if that one rests, people will start to hallucinate. Mm-hmm. In, 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 in a way that they also do with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll uh, imagine things. It's like dreaming while awake. They'll, they'll see symbols or people, maybe ancestral spirits, maybe, you know, it will be a very rich dreamlike state that when it happens, when people are awake, we call it hallucinations, but it's not pathological because we've kind of opened up a space in which people can dream while awake. And, um, and so, um, yeah, that, um, uh, so, so IFS is psychedelic in and of itself. And it's mm-hmm. not uncommon for, um, you know, another client, uh, lamented that she had no spiritual life. She had no spiritual beliefs. She didn't believe in the afterlife any sort of spirituality and during a preparatory ifs session she eventually went on to get some ketamine um she had a a very rich conversation with her mother and father who had passed away 10 years before and you know this is someone who you know or had a part that wanted to assure me that she had no spiritual life and yet she had a very rich conversation Mm -hmm. with you know, and you could call it projections of her memories of her parents or their actual spirits. Uh, again, I'm not sure of the ontology and I'm not sure I care. It felt very real at the time. Yeah. And, and she was able to talk to them. She was able to say something to her uh, mother and father who had, again, died 10 years before that needed to be said. It, it just things that needed to be said. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and 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 that was healing in in many respects on its own. And so that was a I would call it you could call it a hallucination. She hallucinated the spirits of her father and mother um, with IFS. There was no medicine in, involved at that point. Um, so IFS is psychedelic in its own right, um, and it, it does it by just asking the the filtering parts of our brain uh, to rest for a moment. And what happens is we dream while awake. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be a healing process um, in the same way that dreams are healing, I believe, um, or can be at least healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think IFS and, and psychedelics do play well together. Um, you know, I think the, the marriage of those two uh, I think was pioneered by Michael and Annie Nithoffer, who are both properly trained IFS therapists, as well as um, leading the uh, clinical development of MDMA for treatment of PTSD. And it was actually through Michael Nithoffer that I learned about IFS for the first time. Hmm. When he when he first described IFS, uh, I was in an MDMA training, and um, he told me about it. And I said, "Oh my God, that makes total sense to me." Hmm. Throughout my life, I realized that I was passionately ambivalent about everything. Mm-hmm. And and I have friends who say, well, you're just apathetic. You don't really care. I say, no, no, I care. I care about this and that, both at the same time. <laughs> so, you know, and, uh, and so I realized that I had part as soon as I heard about the IFS model. And, and uh, the more I learned about it, the more I realized that the power of MDMA is really in allowing to, us to come into self-energy so that we can see our parts more clearly become aware of them more clearly and not be blended or invested in them. We can let them have their stories and be aware of their stories without, um, without being re-traumatized by them. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think how MDMA works is through essentially facilitating an IFS like process that might not otherwise be possible in someone who is so easily triggered by mm-hmm. um, intrusive thoughts or mm-hmm. memories or, arouses and negative content and all mm-hmm. of that all of that stuff that comes with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. I could uh, keep going for another two hours at least. I uh, but I think I think we've taken enough of your time this morning. Uh, thank you so much, Bob, for this really stimulating chat. Yeah, well thank you. Thank you, Joe, for asking really good questions. Um, going to be pondering them. And, <laughs> and thank you for uh, hosting this educational program, which I think is so interesting and useful for so many people. And, you know, the work that you're doing clinically is also amazing. And I'm grateful for the patients that we've shared over the over the last year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And look, look forward to seeing what happens next. I think it's, uh, it's going to be great. Absolutely. Totally agree. Do you want to say anything about Healing Realms uh, or about how people can find you online if you want them to find you online? <laughs> no, we're, we're open and we uh, specialize in ketamine-assisted internal family systems. And we're uh, based in San Francisco, California. And our website is healingrealmcenter.com. And uh, there's a, a link there for a free consultation. And then... Um, uh, people travel from all over the world to work with us. Um, uh, we're licensed in California. So, uh, but if you're in California, as far as I'm concerned, you're Californian for that day. <laughs> and, 
And um, yeah, we, uh, it's, it's not just me doing the work. We have an extraordinarily diverse um, and, and, and queer group of, of therapists um, and uh, psychiatric nurse practitioner myself. I'm not a psychiatrist, although um, I think it's a missed calling. I, I, I would become a psychiatrist if, if and in fact, I may. I, you know, I keep thinking I should just apply and be a, a psychiatric resident for a while and then be a psychiatrist because I honor uh, that discipline so much. Um, but I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do have a psychiatric nurse practitioner and we have uh, a whole group of psychotherapists who are brilliant and, and they're all getting IFS trained uh, on the job. And then uh, we're hoping to open up new training programs for people. I do uh, teach uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy from an IFS lens. That's an online course that cycles every couple of months. And then I teach a basic ketamine-assisted psychotherapy class, which doesn't really get too deeply into IFS, but teaches the basics around route of administration and dosing and, you know, side effects and indication, contraindication, all that stuff. That's in the basic CAP class. And then the advanced class is really all about IFS and ketamine together. So, you know, I'm, I, I really want to support the IFS community. I think that IFS and ketamine and MDMA are particularly good matches. And, um, and I just am an advocate for um, more people getting trained and learning how to do this. Mm. Having um, followed one of your trainings, um, I can testify to the quality of the training and how helpful it was to me. So I'll put that um, endorsement out there. And again, Bob, thanks so much. And uh, hope to chat again sometime soon. Yeah, uh, we will, Joe. All Good right. To see you. All right. Take care, Bob. Thanks for listening to the Mindspace podcast. I hope it was inspiring. If you feel the world could use a little more Mindspace, please consider supporting the podcast. The best way to do that is to leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen, or share your favorite episode on social media. Thanks and be well. Be well.